Section twenty two of The Great Events, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume One. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. Section twenty two solon's early greek legislation b c five hundred ninety four by george grote part one lycurgus the reputed spartan lawgiver is credited with the construction about b c eight hundred of the earliest grecian commonwealth founded upon a specific code of laws these laws had mainly a military basis and through obedience to them the Spartans became a people of great hardiness, accustomed to self-discipline, famous for their prowess and endurance in war, and for sternness of individual and social virtues. In Athens there were no written laws until the time of Draco, B.C. 621, the government before that period having been long in the hands of an oligarchy. In the year above named, Draco was archon, and to him was entrusted the work of framing a legal code, conditions under the oligarchic rule having become intolerable to the people at large. The chief features of Draco's legislation had reference to the punishment of crime, and so extreme were the severities of the system, and so cruel the penalties it prescribed, that in later times it was declared to have been written in blood. The draconian laws remained in force until superseded by the great system of Solon, whose advent as the new lawgiver was brought about mainly through the conspiracy of Cylon, twelve years after the legislation of Draco. Affairs in Athens were in a deplorable state of confusion and violence. The revolt of the poor against the power and privilege of the rich leading to dangerous dissensions and collisions solon who enjoyed a universal reputation for wisdom and uprightness was called upon by the oligarchy which again held rule to assume what was in fact almost absolute power the character of his legislation and its influence upon the course of greek history have been set forth by many authors and the following account is perhaps the best that has appeared in modern literature. Solon, son of Exesestides, was an opatride of middling fortune, but of the purest heroic blood, belonging to the gens or family of the Codrids and Nelaids, and tracing his origin to the god Poseidon. His father is said to have diminished his substance by prodigality, which compelled Solon in his earlier years to have recourse to trade, and in this pursuit he visited many parts of Greece and Asia. He was thus enabled to enlarge the sphere of his observation, and to provide material for thought, as well as for composition. His poetical talents displayed themselves at a very early age, first on light, afterward on serious subjects. It will be recollected that there was at that time no Greek prose writing, and that the acquisitions as well as the effusions of an intellectual man, even in their simplest form, 
adjusted themselves not to the limitations of the period and the semicolon, but to those of the hexameter and pentameter. Nor, in point of fact, do the verses of Solon aspire to any higher effect than we are accustomed to associate with an earnest, touching, and admonitory prose composition. The advice and appeals which he frequently addressed to his countrymen were delivered in this easy metre, doubtless far less difficult than the elaborate prose of subsequent writers or speakers, such as Thucydides, Isocrates, or Demosthenes. His poetry and his reputation became known throughout many parts of Greece, so that he was classed along with tales of Miletus, Bias of Preen, Pitacus of Mytilene, Periander of Corinth, Cleobulus of Lindus, Calon of Lacedaemon, altogether forming the constellation afterward renowned as the Seven Wise Men. The first particular event in respect to which Solon appears as an active politician is the possession of the island of Salamis, then disputed between Megara and Athens. Megara was at that time able to contest with Athens, and for some time to contest with success. The occupation of this important island, a remarkable fact which perhaps may be explained by supposing that the inhabitants of Athens and its neighborhood carried on the struggle with only partial aid from the rest of Attica. However this may be, it appears that the Megarians had actually established themselves in Salamis at the time when Solon began his political career, and that the Athenians had experienced so much loss in the struggle as to have formally prohibited any citizen from ever submitting a proposition for its reconquest. Stung with this dishonorable abnegation, Solon counterfeited a state of ecstatic excitement, rushed into the agora, and there on the stone, usually occupied by the official herald, pronounced to the surrounding crowd a short elegiac poem which he had previously composed on the subject of Salamis. Enforcing upon them the disgrace of abandoning the island, he wrought so powerfully upon their feelings that they rescinded their prohibitory law. Rather, he exclaimed, would I forfeit my native city and become a citizen of Folegandrus, than be still named an Athenian, branded with the shame of surrendered Salamis? The Athenians again entered into the war, and conferred upon him the command of it, partly, as we are told, at the instigation of Pisistratus, though the latter must have been at this time, B.C. 600 to 594, a very young man, or rather boy. The stories in Plutarch as to the way in which Salamis was recovered are contradictory as well as apocryphal, ascribing to Solon various stratagems to deceive the Megarian occupiers. Unfortunately, no authority is given for any of them. According to that which seems the most plausible, he was directed by the Delphian god first to propitiate the local heroes of the island, and he accordingly crossed over to it by night, for the purpose of sacrificing to the heroes Periphemus and Siherus 
on the Salaminian shore. Five hundred Athenian volunteers were then levied for the attack of the island, under the stipulation that if they were victorious, they should hold it in property and citizenship. They were safely landed on an outlying promontory, while Solon, having been fortunate enough to seize a ship which the Megarians had sent to watch the proceedings, manned it with Athenians and sailed straight toward the city of Salamis, to which the Athenians who had landed also directed their march. The Megarians marched out from the city to repel the latter, and during the heat of the engagement, Solon, with his Megarian ship and Athenian crew, sailed directly to the city. The Megarians, interpreting this as the return of their own crew, permitted the ship to approach without resistance, and the city was thus taken by surprise. Permission having been given to the Megarians to quit the island, Solon took possession of it for the Athenians, erecting a temple to Enyalius, the god of war, on Cape Skiradium, near the city of Salamis. The citizens of Megara, however, made various efforts for the recovery of so valuable a possession, so that a war ensued, long as well as disastrous to both parties. At last, it was agreed between them to refer the dispute to the arbitration of Sparta, and five Spartans were appointed to decide it, Critolidas, Amomphoretus, Hypsechidas, Anaxilas, and Cleomenes. The verdict in favor of Athens was founded on evidence which it is somewhat curious to trace. Both parties attempted to show that the dead bodies buried in the island conformed to their own peculiar mode of interment, and both parties are said to have cited verses from the catalogue of the Iliad, each accusing the other of error or interpolation. But the Athenians had the advantage on two points. First, there were oracles from Delphi, wherein Salamis was mentioned with the epithet Ionian. Next, Phileus and Eriseikis, sons of the Telamonian Ajax, the great hero of the island, had accepted the citizenship of Athens, made over Salamis to the Athenians, and transferred their own residences to Broron and Melit in Attica, where the deem or gens, Philidae, still worshipped Phileus as its eponymous ancestor. Such a title was held sufficient, and Salamis was abjudged by the five Spartans to Attica, with which it ever afterward remained incorporated until the days of Macedonian supremacy. Two centuries and a half later, when the orator Aeschines argued the Athenian right to Amphipolis against Philip of Macedon, the legendary elements of the title were indeed put forward, but more in the way of preface or introduction to the substantial political grounds. But in the year 600 BC, the authority of the legend was more deep-seated and operative, and adequate by itself, to determine a favorable verdict. In addition to the conquest of Salamis, Solon increased his reputation by espousing the cause of the Delphian temple against the extortionate proceedings of the inhabitants of Kirra, 
and the favor of the oracle was probably not without its effect in procuring for him that encouraging prophecy with which his legislative career opened it is on the occasion of solon's legislation that we obtain our first glimpse unfortunately but a glimpse of the actual state of attica and its inhabitants it is a sad and repulsive picture presenting to us political discord and private suffering combined violent dissensions prevailed among the inhabitants of attica who were separated into three factions the pedies or men of the plain comprising athens eloises and the neighboring territory among whom the greatest number of rich families were included the mountaineers in the east and north of attica called diacri who were on the whole the poorest party and the parley in the southern portion of attica from sea to sea whose means and social position were intermediate between the two upon what particular points these intestine disputes turned we are not distinctly informed they were not however peculiar to the period immediately preceding the archonship of solon they had prevailed before and they reappear afterward prior to the despotism of pisistratus the latter standing forward as the leader of the diacre and as champion real or pretended of the poorer population but in the time of solon these intestine quarrels were aggravated by something much more difficult to deal with a general mutiny of the poorer population against the rich resulting from misery combined with oppression the thetes whose condition we have already contemplated in the poems of homer and hesiod are now presented to us as forming the bulk of the population of attica the cultivating tenants metayers and small proprietors of the country they are exhibited as weighed down by debts and dependents and driven in large numbers out of state of freedom into slavery the whole mass of them we are told being in debt to the rich who were proprietors of the greater part of the soil they had either borrowed money for their own necessities or they tilled the lands of the rich as dependent tenants paying a stipulated portion of the produce and in this capacity they were largely in arrear all the calamitous effects were her seen of the old harsh law of debtor and creditor once prevalent in greece italy asia and a large portion of the world combined with the recognition of slavery as legitimate status and of the right of one man to sell himself as well as that of another man to buy him every debtor unable to fulfil his contract was liable to be adjudged as the slave of his creditor until he could find means either of paying it or working it out and not only he himself but his minor sons and unmarried daughters and sisters also whom the law gave him the power of selling the poor man thus borrowed upon the security of his body to translate literally the greek phrase and upon that of the persons in his family so severely had these oppressive contracts been enforced that many debtors had been reduced from freedom to slavery 
in attica itself many others had been sold for exportation and some had only hitherto preserved their own freedom by selling their children moreover a great number of the smaller properties in attica were under mortgage signified according to the formality usual in the attic law and continued down throughout the historical times by a stone pillar erected on the land inscribed with the name of the lender and the amount of the loan the proprietors of these mortgage lands in case of an unfavorable turn of events had no other prospect except that of irremediable slavery for themselves and their families either in their own native country robbed of all its delights or in some barbarian region where the attic accent would never meet their ears some had fled the country to escape legal adjudication of their persons and earned a miserable subsistence in foreign parts by degrading occupations upon several too this deplorable lot had fallen by unjust condemnation and corrupt judges the conduct of the rich in regard to money sacred and profane in regard to matters public as well as private being thoroughly unprincipled and rapacious the manifold and long-continued suffering of the poor under this system plunged into a state of debasement not more tolerable than that of gallic plebs and the injustices of the rich in whom all political power was then vested are facts well attested by the poems of solon himself even in the short fragments preserved to us it appears that immediately preceding the time of his archonship the evils had ripened to such a point and the determination of the mass of sufferers to extort for themselves some mode of relief had become so pronounced that the existing laws could no longer be enforced according to the profound remark of aristotle that seditions are generated by great causes but out of small incidents we may conceive that some recent events had occurred as immediate stimulants to the outbreak of the debtors like those which lent so striking an interest to the early roman annals as the inflaming sparks of violent popular movements for which the train had long before been laid condemnations by the archons of insolvent debtors may have been unusually numerous or the maltreatment of some particular debtor once a respected freeman in his condition of slavery may have been brought to act vividly upon the public sympathies like the case of the old plebeian centurion at rome first impoverished by the plunder of the enemy then reduced to borrow and lastly abjudged to his creditor as an insolvent who claimed the protection of the people in the forum rousing their feelings to the highest pitch by the marks of the slave whip visible on his person some such incidents had probably happened though we have no historians to recount them moreover it is not unreasonable to imagine that that public mental affliction which the purifier epimenides had been invoked to appease as it sprung in part from pestilence so it had its cause partly in years of sterility which must of course have aggravated the distress 
of the small cultivators. However this may be, such was the condition of things in B.C. 594, through mutiny of the poor freemen and seats, and uneasiness of the middling citizens, that the governing oligarchy, unable either to enforce their private debts or to maintain their political power, were obliged to invoke the well-known wisdom and integrity of Solon. Though his vigorous protest, which doubtless rendered him acceptable to the mass of the people, against the iniquity of the existing system had already been proclaimed in his poems, they still hoped that he would serve as an auxiliary to help them over their difficulties. They therefore choose him nominally as Archon, along with Philombrutus, but with power in substance dictatorial. It had happened in several Grecian states that the governing oligarchies, either by quarrels among their own members, or by the general bad condition of the people under their government, were deprived of that hold upon the public mind which was essential to their power. Sometimes, as in the case of Pitacus of Mytilene, anterior to the archonship of Solon, and often in the factions of the Italian republics in the Middle Ages, the collision of opposing forces had rendered society intolerable and driven all parties to acquiesce in the choice of some reforming dictator. Usually, however, in the early Greek oligarchies, this ultimate crisis was anticipated by some ambitious individual who availed himself of the public discontent to overthrow the oligarchy and usurp the powers of a despot. And so probably it might have happened in Athens, had not the recent failure of Cylon, with all its miserable consequences, operated as a deterring motive. It is curious to read, in the words of Solon himself, the temper in which his appointment was construed by a large portion of the community, but more especially by his own friends, bearing in mind that at this early day, so far as our knowledge goes, democratical government was a thing unknown in Greece. All Grecian governments were either oligarchical or despotic, the mass of the freemen having not yet tasted of constitutional privilege. His own friends and supporters were the first to urge him, while redressing the prevalent discontents, to multiply partisans for himself personally and seize the supreme power. They even chid him as a madman for declining to haul up the net when the fish were already enmeshed. The mass of the people, in despair with their lot, would gladly have seconded him in such an attempt while many even among the oligarchy might have acquiesced in his personal government, from the mere apprehension of something worse if they resisted it. That Solon might easily have made himself despot admits of little doubt, and though the position of a Greek despot was always perilous, he would have had greater facility for maintaining himself in it than Pisistratus possessed after him so that nothing but the combination of prudence and virtue, which marks his lofty character, restricted him 
within the trust specially confided to him. To the surprise of everyone, to the dissatisfaction of his own friends, under the complaints alike, as he says, of various extreme and dissentient parties, who required him to adopt measures fatal to the peace of society, he set himself honestly to solve the very difficult and critical problem submitted to him. Of all grievances, the most urgent was the condition of the poorer class of debtors. To their relief, Solon's first measure, the memorable Seisekteia, or shaking off of burdens, was directed. The relief which it afforded was complete and immediate. It cancelled at once all those contracts in which the debtor had borrowed on the security either of his person or of his land. It forbade all future loans or contracts in which the person of the debtor was pledged as security. It deprived the creditor in future of all power to imprison or enslave or extort work from his debtor and confined him to an effective judgment at law authorizing the seizure of the property of the latter. It swept off all the numerous mortgage pillars from the landed properties in Attica, leaving the land free from all past claims. It liberated and restored to their full rights all debtors actually in slavery under previous legal adjudication, and it even provided the means, we do not know how, of repurchasing in foreign lands and bringing back to the renewed life of liberty in Attica many insolvents who had been sold for exportation. And while Solon forbade every Athenian to pledge or sell his own person into slavery, he took a step farther in the same direction by forbidding him to pledge or sell his son, his daughter, or an unmarried sister under his tutelage excepting only the case in which either of the latter might be detected in unchastity. Whether this last ordinance was contemporaneous with the Seisakteia, or followed as one of his subsequent reforms, seems doubtful. By this extensive measure, the poor debtors, the thieves, small tenants, and proprietors, together with their families, were rescued from suffering and peril. But these were not the only debtors in the state. The creditors and landlords of the exonerated seats were doubtless in their turn debtors to others, and were less able to discharge their obligations in consequence of the loss inflicted upon them by the Seisakteia. It was to assist these wealthier debtors, whose bodies were in no danger, yet without exonerating them entirely that Solon resorted to the additional expedient of debasing the money standard. He lowered the standard of the drachma in a proportion of something more than 25%, so that hundred drachmas of the new standard contained no more silver than 73 of the old, or hundred of the old were equivalent to 138 of the new. By this change, the creditors of these more substantial debtors were obliged to submit to a loss, while the debtors acquired an exemption to the extent of about 27%. Lastly, Solon decreed 
that all those who had been condemned by the archons to atomy civil disfranchisement should be restored to their full privileges of citizens excepting however from this indulgence those who had been condemned by the Ephetae, or by the areopagus or by the philobasileis the four kings of the tribes after trial in the Pritanium on charges either of murder or treason so wholesale a measure of amnesty affords strong grounds for believing that the previous judgments of the archons had been intolerably harsh and it is to be recollected that the draconian ordinances were then in force end of section twenty two